Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for another episode of Button Books. We're doing chapter three, then reading chapter four. Uh, podcasting from my car currently because I don't want to wake anyone up in the motel room. So I'm just sitting in the car out here in Yarrawonga. It's beautiful out here. Tried to do some stand up paddle boarding out in the lake today. Uh, failed miserably. I stood up for about five seconds, so that was pretty good, and I fell in into the lake, so, uh, practicing, still practicing, um, but yeah, it's beautiful here, I'm just trying to ignore the the fact that this, even though we're in a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere in Australia, out at Lake Mulwala, there's a, been a lot of cases here, and by cases, you know what I'm talking about. And we're hearing about friends who have just come back from here, just by chance. They've holidayed to the same little town, uh, and now they've gone back home and found out they've, you know, contracted or caught COVID while they were out here. And there's just been a little blow up of it here in this particular town. So we've chosen just the worst place to holiday to. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, in that regard, but um, I think it's. It's kind of everywhere at the moment here in Australia. Everywhere is the same, in the same boat. Um, anyway, let's not talk about COVID. We don't do that very often here on the podcast, so let's not start now. Chapter 3, some kind of business dealings between Buddenbrook Senior and Junior and Mara, uh, Mama Buddenbrook and the third party Gotthold made some kind of mistake? Question mark. Sorry, a bit of this chapter went over my head. It did go a bit over my head, this chapter. But, great comment here from Swim, said the Mama Fishy, laying it all out straight for us. Family drama. So, okay. Johan Barenbrooks Jr. is taking Mum into dinner. Apparently Mum is the second wife, and there is a stepson from the previous wife. Gotthold wants money from the firm. He wants 11,000 thalers from the working capital. Gotthold has written three letters about it, and Johann Sr. is ignoring his son from his first wife. The stepson, Gotthold, thinks the stepmom is deliberately causing estrangement, but it's really Johann Sr., his father, the snob. The stepson married Demoiselle Stewing, who has, quell horror, a shop, which is quite beneath Johann Sr. Johann Jr. kind of wants to pay him off, Johan Sr. won't pay it and is not answering letters. Johan Jr.'s sister has already been paid off satisfactorily. Very awesome recap. Thank you. That makes sense for me. The Chevalier says, So, are they fighting over the house? Like inheritance? Or am I confused? Swim said the mother. She said, From what I can gather, Gotthold believes his father used Gotthold's rightful inheritance as part of the house's purchase price. Gotthold wants that money. The money would have come from the working capital if Gotthold was paid. Apparently Gotthold got a smaller amount of money when he married the shopkeeper than he expected. Cool. Um, raging, sorry, rail jinxing about says, What struck me most about this was the exposition... And how Madame Buttonbrook says things like, But Gotthold believes that I, his stepmother, 
I think most writers nowadays would try to avoid having the characters explain things to each other that are obvious to them. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you can even attribute it to being an older book because even in older books it's kind of not... It's not great to have characters say, you know, say the plot to each other. Um, that one snuck by me, though. I didn't pick up on that. But I'll, now I'm definitely going to be aware of it. Are the characters just explaining the plot to each other and saying things like, you would think me, the main character of this book, would definitely blah, 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 you know. Anywho. Um... We'll continue reading, if I can find the right page here on my little tablet, chapter 4, and we'll see if any more of these conversations seem a bit artificial or not. Alright, chapter 4. Our best respects to you, Buttonbrook, I repeat. Our best respects, her Coppin's powerful voice drowned the general conversation as the maid servant in her heavy striped petticoat her fat arms bare and a little white cap on the back of her head, passed the cabbage soup and toast, assisted by Mademoiselle Jungmann and the Frau Consul's maid from upstairs. The guests began to use their soup spoons. Such plenty, such elegance, I must say. You know how to do things, I must say. Her coppin had never visited the house in its former owner's time. He did not come of a patrician family and had only lately become a man of means. He could never quite get rid of certain vulgar tricks of speech like the repetition of I must say, and he said respects instead of respects. It didn't cost anything either, remarked her Gretchens, dryly, dryly. He certainly ought to have known, and studied the wall painting through the hollow of his hand. As far as possible, ladies and gentlemen had been paired off and members of the family placed between friends of the house, but the arrangement could not be carried out in every case. The two overdeeks, dirks, there's a letter missing, overdeeks, were sitting as usual nearly on each other's laps, nodding affectionately at one another. The elder Kroger was bolt upright, enthroned between Madame Antoinette and Frau Senator Langholz, dividing his pet jokes and his flourishes between the two ladies. When was the house built? asked her Hofstad diagonally across the table of old Bunbrook, who was talking in a gay, chafing tone with Madame Coppin. And all, let me see, about 1680, if I am not mistaken. My son is better at dates than I am. 82, said the consul, leaning forward. He was sitting at the foot of the table without a partner next to Senator Langholz. It was finished in the winter of 1682. Rattenkamp and company were just getting to the top of their form. Sadly, how the firm broke down in the last 20 years. A general pause in the conversation ensued, lasting for half a minute while the company looked down at their plates and pondered on the fortunes of the brilliant family who had built and lived in the house and then broken and impoverished had left it. Yes, said Broker Gratchens, it's sad when you think of the madness that led to their ruin. If Dietrich Rettenkamp had not taken that fellow Gilmark for a partner, I flung up my hands, I know, when he came into the management... I have it on the best authority, gentlemen, that he speculated disgracefully behind Rattenkamp's back and gave notes and acceptance rights, acceptances right and left in the firm's name. Finally, the game was up. The bank got suspicious. The firm couldn't give security. 
you haven't the least idea. Who looked after the warehouse, even? Gilmark, perhaps? It was a perfect rat's nest there, year in, year out, but Rat and Camp never troubled himself about it. He was like a man, paralysed, the consul said. A gloomy, taciturn look came on his face. He leaned over and stirred his soup, now and then giving a quick glance with his little round, deep-set eyes at the upper end of the table. He went about like a man with a load on his mind. I think one can understand his burden. What made him take Gilmark into the business, a man who bought, brought painfully little capital and had not the best of reputations? He must have felt the need of sharing his heavy responsibility with someone, not much matter who, because he realised that the end was inevitable. The firm was ruined, and the old family, passe, Gilmark only gave it the last push over the edge. Pastor Wunderlich filled his own and his neighbour's wine glass. So, you think, my dear console, he said with a discreet smile, that even with Gilmark things would have turned out just as they did? Oh, probably not, the console said thoughtfully, not addressing anybody in particular. But I do think that Dietrich Rettenkamp was driven by fate when he took Gilmark into partnership. That was the way his destiny was to be fulfilled. He acted under the pressure of inexorable necessity. I think he knew more or less what his partner was doing and what the state of affairs was at the warehouse, but he was paralysed. I says, Sheen, interposed old Buddenbrook, laying down his spoon, that's one of your ideas. The console rather absently lifted his glass to his father. Lebrecht Kroger broke in. Let's stick by the jolly present. He took up a bottle of white wine that had a little silver stag on the stopper, and with one of his fastidious, elegant motions he held it on its side and examined the label C.F. Coppen, he read, and nodded to the wine merchant. Ah, yes, where should we be without you? Madame Antoinette kept a sharp eye on the servants while they changed the gilt-edged meese and plates. Mademoiselle Jumen called orders through the speaking tube into the kitchen, and the fish was brought in. Pastor Wunderlich remarked, as he helped himself, this jolly present isn't such a matter of course as it seems either. The young folk here can hardly realise, I suppose, that things could ever have been different from what they are now. But I think I may fairly claim to have had a personal share more than once in the fortunes of the Buddenbrook family. Whenever I see one of these, for instance, he picked up one of the heavy silver spoons and turned to Mademoiselle Antoinette, I can't help wondering whether they belonged to the set that our friend, the philosopher Lenore, sergeant under his majesty the Emperor Napoleon, had in his hands in the same year, 1806, when I think of our meeting in Elf Street, madame. Madame Buttonbrook looked down at her plate with a smile, half of memory, half of embarrassment. Tom and Tony, at the bottom of the table, cried out almost with one voice, Oh yes, tell about it, Grandmama. They did not want the fish, and they had been listening attentively to the conversation of their elders, but the pastor knew that she would not care to speak herself on the incident that had been rather painful to her. He came to her rescue and launched out once more upon the old story. It was new, perhaps, to one or two of the present company. As for the children, they could have listened to it a hundred times. While imagine a November afternoon, cold and rainy, a wretched day, and me coming back down Elf Street from some parochial duty. I was thinking of the hard times we were having. Prince Blucher had gone, and the French were in town. There was a little outward sign of the excitement that reigned everywhere. 
The streets were quiet. The people stopped close in their homes. Prowl, the master butcher, had been shot through the head just for standing at the door of his shop with his hands in his pockets and making a menacing remark about it being hard to stand. Well, thought I to myself, I'll just have to look in at their Buddenbrooks. Her Buddenbrook is down with Crispellus, and Madam has a great deal to do on account of the billeting. At that very moment, whom should I see coming towards me but our honoured Madam Buddenbrook herself? What a state she was in, hurrying through the rain, hatless, stumbling rather than walking with a shawl flung round her shoulders and her hair falling down. Yes, madam, it is quite true. It was falling down. This is a pleasant surprise, I said. She never saw me, and I made bold to lay my hand on her sleeve, for my mind misgave me about the state of things. Where are you off to in such a hurry, my dear? She realised who I was, looked at me and burst out. Farewell, farewell. All is over. I'm going into the river. God forbid, I cried. I... I could feel that I went white. That is no place for you, my dear. And I held her tightly, as decorum permitted. What has happened? What has happened? She cried, all trembling. They've got at the silver wonderlich. That's what's happened. And Jean lies there with Eris Bellis and can't do anything. He couldn't even if he were up. They are stealing my spoons, wonderlich, and I am going into the river. Well, I kept holding her, and I said what one would in such cases. Courage, dear lady, it will be all right. Control yourself, I beg of you. We will go and speak with them. Let us go. And I got her to go back up the street to her house. The soldiery were up in the dining room where Madame had left them, some twenty of them, at the great silver chest. Gentlemen, I say politely, with which one of you may I have the pleasure of a little conversation? They begin to laugh, and they say, with all of us, Papa but one of them steps out and presents himself, a fellow as tall as a tree with a black and waxed moustache and big red hands sticking out. Big red hands sticking out of his braided cuffs. Lenore, he said, and saluted with his left hand, for he had five or six spoons in his right. Sergeant Lenore, what can I do for you? Her officer, I say, appealing to his sense of honour, after your magnificent charge, how can you stoop to this sort of thing? The town has not closed its gates to the emperor. What do you expect, he answered. War is war. The people need these things. But you ought to be careful, I interrupted him, for an idea had come into my head. This lady, I said, one will say anything at a time like that. The lady of the house, she isn't a German. She is almost a compatriot of yours. She is a Frenchwoman. Oh, a Frenchwoman, he repeated. And then, what do you suppose he said, this big swashbuckler? Oh, an emigre. Then she is an enemy of philosophy. I was quite taken aback, but I managed not to laugh. You're a man of intellect, I see, said I. I repeat that I consider your conduct unworthy. He was silent for a moment. Then he got red, tossed his half-dozen spoons back into the chest and exclaimed, Who told you I was going to do anything with these things but look at them? It's fine silver. If one or two of my men take a piece as a souvenir... Well, in the end, they took plenty of souvenirs, of course. No use appealing to justice, either human or divine. I suppose they knew no other god than that terrible little Corsican. Well, there we go. A little look-in from Napoleon and his crew of thieving men. Uh, reminds me a little bit of what happened in Moscow. Once they take over the joint, they just start uh, looting
Um, all right, cool, great chapter. I'll leave it there for tonight. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.